Welcome to episode 67 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. I got a lot of fights to talk about on this one because I wasn't able to get a podcast out after the Wednesday fight with Calvin Cater and Dan Ige. So the first thing I'll recap is the card that just happened on Saturday that was headlined by Davis Figueredo and Joseph Benavides, where Figueredo was able to win the flyweight title. Uh, then I'll recap the card with Qatar and Ige. Previewed the upcoming card next Saturday that's going to be headlined by Darren Till and Robert Whitaker. Uh, from there, we finally have a return of Bellator. It's been quite a while since they've last had their fight, but they are going to have a fight coming up on Friday, so I'll re- preview that card. Talk about a weird little situation with Ali Abdelaziz, where after uh, the fight last weekend where Jorge Masvidal had lost to Kamar Usman, there was some talk about who could be the next number one contender, and Ariel was pretty aggressively pushing for Leon Edwards rather than Gilbert Burns, who Dana White had gone out and said was going to be the guy. And Ali felt as though that was specifically done as a disrespect towards an Ali client because he felt like since he can't get interviews with all these clients that'd be better for him if Leon Edwards got the title shot because then he could get interviews with Leon Edwards Um, so not only did Ali keep the ban on Ariel Helwani's show but he also decided to extend it to any other ESPN show as well and I guess an effort to try to push Ariel out didn't really work out Ariel's still there but I'll talk about that whole situation preview a really big jiu-jitsu event that's going to be coming up uh, next Saturday called BJJ Stars uh, I feel like they've done these events before and have had some trouble paying everyone just because they bring in a lot of the best guys in the world. Uh, but they're going to be doing another one, so whether or not the guys get paid, hopefully they do, but at least in the meantime, it's going to be a fun event to watch, so I'll preview that. And then also I'll preview a pretty big card in wrestling that Flow of Wrestling is going to be putting on. Um, so back to the top, we have UFC Fight Island 2, um, Figueroa versus Benavides 2. And as I mentioned in the main event, Davison Figueroa was able to get the win over Joseph Benavides. Uh, very dominant performance by him, and though Benavides, after getting dropped the second time and eventually getting back up after fighting a couple chokes off, was able to get some decent shots off when he was able to close the distance on Figueredo, for the most part, this was mostly one-way traffic, and it was kind of crazy because you could just see what was coming the whole way through, and for whatever reason, either Benavides or his coaches didn't. So in the first fight, this is eventually what, what cost Benavides where he ended up getting dropped, but it, it was definitely the case in this fight as well. Benavides typically fights out of southpaw. Figueredo typically fights out of orthodox. Figueredo is a power puncher, and specifically with his right hand, which is his rear hand. And a really bad habit that Benavides had in the first fight, and also in this fight especially, is that when you're dealing with a guy, first off, when you have switch stances, so when you have one guy who's orthodox and one guy who's southpaw, the guy who's southpaw is going to be looking for that straight left. That's going to be a really big weapon for him. Uh, But on the other end, the guy who's orthodox is going to be looking for a straight right, and that'll be a big weapon for him. Uh, so there's a real danger in circling towards your opponent's power hand or just only circling towards your opponent's power hand. Obviously, you can't just circle one way the entire time. Even if you're circling away from the power, you still want to kind of mix it up. Uh, but for the most part, Benavides was constantly circling to his left, which is towards Figueredo's power right hand. And for the most part, Benavides, he, he did a decent job, at least when he was not throwing anything of keeping his, his lead hand up. Uh, but the second he threw a kick or if he threw a punch, that hand would drop immediately. And Figueredo was doing a really good job of finding a home for his right hand whenever that would happen. So oddly enough, the first knockdown was actually uh, a brief moment where after Figueredo um, had landed a shot along the cage, uh, switched stances into southpaw, and then when Benavides was throwing a kick, Figueredo threw a lead right hook. So it was still his right hand, but it was from the lead side rather than the rear side because Figueredo was in southpaw briefly in that moment, uh, but was able to drop Benavides with that right hook. Um, gets on top into like a half guard type of position, landing a couple of nice elbows. And another thing that I noticed here, and I had a question on this on the video that I just put up. So I, I just put up a video for a couple of fights that I'll get to soon. 
uh, that were both finished by leg locks. I just broke down those specific leg lock finishes, one by Jack Hermanson and then one by Arian Lipsky. Uh, but I had a question just asking if there was anything really notable about the grappling exchanges in the Figueredo versus Benavides fight. So I guess I'll, I'll mention that now. What was most notable to me here, and this is kind of a long-term thing with Joseph Benavides, is that Benavides, when he's on the ground, typically likes to grapple in more of a wrestling style than a jiu-jitsu style, though I'm sure he has plenty of jiu-jitsu at this point. Uh, if you get on top of him, it's not like he's going to try to get his butterfly hooks, elevate you, and then like try to get it back up that way. Typically, he's going to try to create some kind of scramble, um, then sort of give up his back somewhat, and then from there, uh, fight the hands, get out, and just escape like a folk-style wrestler typically would. Another interesting thing about him is that when he's off of his back, a lot of his sweeps tend to be wrestling-based. He's really good at doing a leg pass, which is a wrestling move, um, sort of reminiscent to what we've seen a lot from Ben Askren in his wrestling days um, to create scrambles. Uh, that scramble that everyone was showing before this fight where he ended up getting in the armbar actually was initiated by him using a leg pass to try to sweep or at least get back up off of his feet. And then in that exchange, uh, got his arm caught, was able to get his arm out of there, though, and then eventually got out and the fight continued on. Um, but again, that's more of what Benavides' style was here. So since he was on bottom here, rather than trying to elevate or try to get into a close guard or threaten with some type of submission and then try to get up off of that, um, Benavides just kind of turned away, gave up his back, and then was trying to get back up that way. But he was already hurt when he gave up his back, uh, so it wasn't as fast or as quick as he likes to be there to prevent both hooks from getting in. Uh, so as he gives up his back in the middle of an elbow being thrown, is able to quickly get both hooks in, has his back, and then from there starts looking for some chokes. For the most part, Figueroa wasn't looking to get the traditional finish on the rear naked choke where you um, grab your bicep and then bring the other arm around the back of the head. He was going more for palm to palm, which is perfectly fine. Um, it, it's a little less powerful than the traditional rear naked choke, but it's still more than strong enough to get the finish. Uh, and you're giving your opponent less of an opportunity to fight the hands and get out of there. But uh, Benavides did a good job of fighting it. Uh, the first rear naked choke attempt, I believe, was over top of the chin. And Benavides was just pushing the elbow up, so he was able to get it where Figueroa could tell that he wasn't going to be able to choke him through the chin at that point. So he was like, okay, why why squeeze my arms out here if I'm not going to get the choke? Uh, so he gave it up, looked for a couple more chokes from there. Benavides did a really good job of grabbing at the wrist and pre preventing Figueroa from really getting a good clamp down before he could eventually get to a finish. So defends a couple more chokes, eventually they get up against the fence, he clears the hook, and then is able to stand back up. Um, and then they go back to center. From there, Benavides had a couple of moments where he was able to get some flurries in tight, landed some nice shots on on Figueredo, but again, for the most part, kept circling towards his left, and Figueredo kept looking for that right hand. Uh, eventually, against the cage, finds another right hand, drops him briefly. Benavides is able to get right back up. Again, keeps circling to his left. Uh, Figueredo, again, I, I think on the one that finally got him, I think he threw a lead left hook first just to kind of get Benavides distracted, and then threw another right hand over the top, uh, and that one dropped Benavides again. Again, once he's dropped, um, ends up in a really bad spot. I think it was half guard initially. Figueredo quickly passes the mount, lands an elbow. From there, Benavides turns um, to give up his back, tries to work his way back up again. But again, especially since he was mounted at that time, both hooks are in. Uh, Figueredo is able to sink in the Renaked choke. Uh, this time, gets his grip fully tight, is able to hide the hand. At that point, Benavides isn't able to clear the hand or able to break that grip. Um, Figueredo bows him out, continues to squeeze, eventually chokes him out, and that's the end of the fight right there. So Davis and Figueredo is now the flyweight champion in the, in the UFC. Fortunately for him, he made weight this time, so everything looks good there. I think he also had better preparation. He was much light, much lighter um, heading into fight week than he was the first time around, so that's good for him. Obviously, now that he's champion, he's going to have to keep making 125 as long as he's fighting for the 125 title. There's no extra pound allowance for him. Uh, not that he needed it, obviously, this time because it was a title fight. He still needed to make 125, but that's just something to think about moving forward. 
Uh, so for Benavides, he was talking about how this is pretty much his last real shot at a title that had he won, he might have considered retiring just then. Um, since he lost, he kind of realizes he's probably not going to get another title shot, especially since he's 0-2 uh, with two finishes against the champion. Uh, so for him, he's pretty much saying, look, I just want to get a win so I can end on a win and then be done with my career at that point. I have my chances I didn't convert on him. It's disappointing, but it is what it is. So to that extent, you, you kind of feel bad for Benavides. He was always one of those top guys in the division, but never the top guy in a division that he was in. Um, had a good run at flyweight, did have that win against Henry Cejudo, even if it was a, a sort of controversial three-round decision that he had. Uh, so for him, you got to be a little bit disappointed. I, I thought it was a little... I, I, I can understand why it happened, but it was kind of annoying as a fan that on the broadcast, it was pretty clear that everyone who worked the broadcast was pretty friendly with Megan Olivia, and I'm sure by being friends with Olivia, I'm sure they hang out with Benavides a good amount as well. And so they were pretty friendly with, with for, to him. And you kind of got this feeling that everyone was really disappointed that Benavides had lost, and they weren't really celebrating Figueredo as much as they probably should. Uh, and it was kind of like a pity party for Benavides also. And that's not to say that Benavides doesn't deserve some pity. You obviously have to feel bad for him, but it did feel like it was a little bit one-sided there in terms of how it was being covered. But either way, I, I still do feel bad for Benavides. It's tough to have to lose that way, but with that being said... Um, a lot of the mistakes that he made in the first fight were also being made in this fight. It doesn't seem like the right adjustments were made for Figueredo. Uh, he saw what worked for him in the first fight, uh, was able to keep finding that in this fight, specifically with that right hand. Um, wasn't super threatening on his left side to, to Benavides. It's not like he was landing heavy left kicks or heavy left hands. It was pretty much the damage that was done on the feet was done on the right side. Benavides kept circling towards that right side, uh, to his left towards um, Figueredo's right side, and Ultimately, that led to him getting knocked down three times and eventually finished on the ground in this fight. Uh, so for Figueredo, where he moves on from here, um, I I believe that Brandon Moreno is probably the guy who deserves the title shot the most right now. Pantoja would have been the guy had he gotten the win uh, in what was otherwise a pretty close fight earlier on this card, but with him losing. Some are making a case for Askar Askarov. If he gets the fight, I won't be too upset about it, but I do think that Brandon Moreno's looked fantastic lately, and I would like to see him get the next shot. Um, but if it's not him, Askarov would be another guy who would who would be in that mix. For Benavides, if he's saying that he pretty much just wants one more win and he retires, what kind of guy do you give him? That's sort of hard to tell. I don't know if you want to give him a contender and let a couple more guys build their name off of him or he beats them and then he gets a nice win to end his career. Uh, I'm not sure where the UFC wants to go from there, but it's not as though they're in any rush to book Benavides again right now. Next fight on the card was Jack Hermanson versus Kelvin Gasolum. I did a breakdown of the technique in this and i would encourage you to watch it it's on youtube right now uh if you aren't able to find it on youtube then maybe it got pulled down by copyright that did happen to a jim miller video did a little while back on his armbar against roosevelt roberts i went out of my way on this video not to like play the whole sequence straight through to to keep from getting pulled but sometimes it still happens uh so if that's the case then you can check on BitChute because it's usually going to be there as well and BitChute is not as aggressive as youtube is in terms of pulling these types of things down um, but either way basically what I'm t what I talk about in that video is that after Kelvin Gaslam got the takedown, Hermanson used the same setup twice, and Gaslam successfully defended in the first time, uh, but Hermanson was able to make a quick adjustment the second time that was able to make it work. So effectively what had happened was Hermanson was in bottom in what's called a half butterfly position. So a full butterfly guard is you have butterfly hooks with both your left and your right leg. A half butterfly position means you just have one butterfly hook. Uh, oftentimes it's if you're stuck in half guard, you might be able to sink in the far leg as a butterfly hook and work from there. Sometimes you just pick half butterfly because that's the position you want to be in. To an extent, I think that's what happened here with Jack Hermanson is that he just likes the half butterfly position. 
Uh, he's really aggressive from here, and he likes attacking from here. So the first time, uh, was able to elevate Gaslam's hips with his butterfly hook, uh, swing his leg around, tried to swing straight into um, a, a knee reap position, but was blocked initially, so he was in a single leg X position. Uh, from there, was able to make a quick adjustment, and then was able to bring the leg across. Um, but at that moment, um, the reaping leg, which was his right leg, and then the, the left leg is the one that he would try to catch behind the knee. Uh, he tried to catch behind Kelvin's knee, but Kelvin was able to push the reap leg down just enough to get his knee free. Uh, and was able to get away just quick enough before Hermanson could catch behind the knee and keep control of him that way. So he was able to clear the first heel hook attempt, ends up going right back into his guard, uh, goes back into a full butterfly guard from there, um, quickly turns into a half butterfly situation again. Same exact setup from Hermanson, probably within like 10 seconds of Kelvin going back into his guard. Uh, but this time he was able to catch around with that far leg, uh, catch behind Kelvin's knee. And in doing that, after he was able to grab onto the Kelvin's um, left leg, which is the one that he attacked with the heel hook. He was able to extend him out. Uh, Kelvin tried to pull away, but because uh, there was the... Um, because Hermanson was able to get his left foot behind Kelvin's right knee, Kelvin wasn't able to pull all the way away, uh, and Hermanson was able to follow him. Uh, so from there, Kelvin was kind of in a tough position where he couldn't really spin out of it because of the foot behind his knee, uh, but he also couldn't really kick his way out of it either because the foot was behind his knees, and the, the knee that it was behind is the one that would have had to kick out. Uh, so Hermanson can kind of extend and keep him from doing that. Uh, and then from there, Hermanson was able to bring the other leg around and also put that foot behind his knee. And at that point, um, there was no spinning out of it. There was no kicking out of it. Um, all there really was was tapping out of it. So there were a lot of people, uh, whether it was Ben Aspirin online. Um, you also had Michael Bisping on the broadcast where they were talking about it like, wow, we're surprised that Kelvin Gassum couldn't get out of that. Uh, didn't look like that difficult of a heel hook to get out of. It was actually a very well done heel hook by Jack Hermanson. The detail of him getting the foot behind the knee made a huge difference in terms of preventing Kelvin from spinning out, which is a common defense, and also from kicking out, which is a common defense. Both of those things were shut down because the foot was behind the knee, and there really wasn't a whole lot of attention brought to that on the broadcast, but I think that's something you really have to watch for and really pay attention to. So, again, if you saw it live, then you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't notice it, I would definitely recommend watching the video that I did on it because I, I show step-by-step step what Hermanson did and how he was able to get the finish there. So a big finish for Jack Hermanson as far as where he goes from here. Uh, sort of tough to tell. He did have that loss to Jared Cannonier, uh that could have potentially put him in, in the title picture. Uh, ended up losing that fight. Cannonier had an injury. I'm sure once this Costa versus Adesanya fight's done, there's a decent chance that Cannonier is going to be next in line. Um, I don't know if they're going to do a rematch of Hermanson and Cannonier in the meantime. Uh, so for him, he's talking about fighting the winner of Will vers or Till versus Whitaker. Uh, that's going to be tough to tell. I don't know if Whitaker gets a win, if they're going to want to push him back into a title fight and do a rematch of what was a huge fight in the first place with him and Adesanya. Uh, so from here, it's not really clear who Hermanson's getting next. But still a good win for him. He didn't really take any damage. Uh, gets a quick win um, over a really tough guy in Kelvin Gastelum. For Kelvin, it's tough in that I think he's now on a three-fight losing streak. He lost to Adesanya. He lost to Darren Till. And now he lost to Jack Hermanson. Uh, he, he's obviously able to hang with these guys. He was tied two rounds. He was tied two to two against the current champion. So he, he's definitely a guy who can compete, who can compete for the title in this weight class, but hasn't had the best of luck in his recent fights. Uh, so for him, I don't know that I really see him moving back down to welterweight. It's something that he's talked about a lot, but he just hasn't been consistent enough in making the weight. If he did move down to welterweight, he'd probably get a top ten matchup right away. And if he had to win there, he'd probably be in the title picture. Uh, but I don't know if the UFC is going to be willing to work with him on that just because of the problems he's had in the past. I don't know if that's something that he wants to do anyway, where he has to add another 15 pounds to his his regular weight cut and really change up his lifestyle so he's 
within striking distance of that weight, but that's something that could be on the table for him. If not, I'm sure he'll still get another top 10 matchup at middleweight, but he's really at a point now where he's going to need to win, and he's going to need to win soon. Um, the fight before that was Mark Jacasey versus Rafael Fiziev. This was the fight of the night. Very entertaining fight. Fiziev, um, really good striker. And, um, apparently he's a striking coach for uh, Tiger Muay Thai down in Thailand. Very, very fast, very powerful kicks, uh, especially the legs and the body. Uh, really interesting trunk movement in terms of how he's able to avoid some kicks where he's able to kind of like dip back like it's the Matrix and then come back. There's a really cool sequence where he's able to like dip out of the way of a head kick and then come back with a really hard leg kick of his own. Um, decent finding shots to the bo- or shots to the head as well, but his kicks to the legs and kicks to the body are just ferocious. Uh, so that was fun to watch. Casey was really tough and able to hang with him. Um, put up a pr- pretty decent fight himself, but ultimately Fiziev was able to get the win here by unanimous decision. Fight before that, this is another leg lock that I had covered in that video I was talking about before. Uh, so this was Arian Lipsky versus Luana Carolina. Uh, really odd in how this fight got to the ground in the first place, where Lipsky just landed a, a punch to the body, and it looked more like Carolina got knocked off balance and she was, like, hurt. Uh, but either way, she went to the ground. Uh, was sort of stalling from close guard. Eventually, Lipsky's able to stand up. Uh, gives up a really weird angle, though, to the point where Carolina, though it wasn't the slickest entry, was, was able to enter into a calf slicer type of position. Uh, but typically, when you go for a calf slicer, you're going to have your, your shin behind their knee, and then the other leg, you're going to want to have triangle over top of your instep, sort of like a triangle choke. Uh, and then from there, you want to extend out while you pull them in at the hips. Um, from there... Carolina did not have that triangle position. She also was being fairly lazy with that other leg of hers. Uh, I believe it was her right leg. Uh, so the whole time Lipsky was sort of looking for the knee bar, she was sort of making it clear that she was trying to attack that leg, and for whatever reason, Carolina didn't really react much to it. So she wasn't in trouble initially, uh, but she really wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to it, which I thought was kind of odd. Um, wasn't extending Lipsky out, and eventually Lipsky was able to continue to pull that leg towards her, um, made a quick adjustment to get the knee line covered. Uh, and then from there was able to straighten out the leg, lean back, and then at that point was able to get a really nasty-looking knee bar. So for Lipsky, it, it was a good submission that she was able to find something in a bad position, but it, it was one of those situations where it's like you don't ever really want to pull yourself into a calf slicer to find a knee bar. It's more so like you get caught in this calf slicer and you find the knee bar there because your opponent's making a, a pretty big mistake. So either way, really good finish for Lipsky. Um, big win for her, plus she gets another $50,000 on top of it for submission of the night, so she should definitely ha- be happy about that. Uh, fight before that, we had Alexander Pantosha versus Askar Askarov. Uh, all three judges had this 29-28. I agreed with that. It was a very close fight, though. First round, Askarov was just constantly pressuring pressuring into Pantosha. Pantosha was constantly looking for submission attempts. Some were closer than others, um, but ultimately Askarov was able to get, get out of pretty much all of them. Uh, I believe he probably outlanded, him, outlanded Pantosha in that round, but unfortunately when you have a round go the way that it was where you're fighting off submission attempts for most of the time, and at the end of the round you're, you have the guy on your back, um, if the judges are doing their job correctly, they're probably going to give it to the other guy, and that seems to be what happened here. It looks like everyone gave Pantoja the first round. Uh, second round, um, to an extent, it was more of the same for Askarov, and then he was still wrestling aggressively, but he was striking a little bit more. Uh, Pantoja, I guess, was just getting exhausted from having so many shots taken on him that his striking wasn't at the level that we've seen in from some past fights where he was just kind of worried about when the next takedown attempt was going to come. So it did create some openings for Askarov. Uh, so Askarov really didn't, didn't get in a whole lot of submission trouble in that round. Uh, so ultimately, he, he wins that round. Third round starts off fairly early with Pantoja dropping Askarov. Uh, initially, when I watched it, I thought it was a, a straight knockdown. And at that point, I was like, wait a minute. It, even though Askarov was stronger towards the end of the round, that probably should be enough for Pantoja to still win it because he did get the knockdown. Uh, but when I watched it the second time around, or when, when I watched that specific specific sequence, 
uh, Askarov was throwing a kick, and Pantoja caught the kick and then threw a punch off of that. So it was more of like an off-balance knockdown than it was like a, an actual, like, you have them rocked type of knockdown. So I thought that it was actually scored right there and that they didn't score it as like an actual knockdown. And so ultimately Pantoja gets outstruck in that round. Uh, the pace of Askarov had worn on him at that point, and so Askarov wins two rounds to one, uh, winning round two and round three. So really good performance from Askarov uh, for Pantoja. Um, obviously, he proved that he can, he can compete with Askarov and give him problems. So if for whatever reason this fight ends up happening again in the future, uh, there's reason to believe that Pantoja can make some adjustments and, and win it. Uh, but with that being said, Askarov gets the win. Uh, Pantoja was number four. He was the guy that everyone figured if someone missed weight, he would be getting the title fight. Uh, unfortunately for him, I guess, uh, both Figueredo and Benavidez made weight, so he had to fight Askarov. Uh, ends up losing that fight and is now going to move back a little bit in the rankings. As for Askarov, I'm sure he'll move back. He'll move up. Uh, and with this being a big card for the flyweights, uh, really made a name for himself uh, right at, right before Figueredo eventually won the belt. And for that reason, there's a decent chance that he might be ne- next in line for a title. I still think that Brandon Moreno should be the guy, but it would not surprise me if after this card it ends up being Askarov. On to the prelims. Uh, we had Roman Delizzi versus Kadis Abragamov. Um, Delizzi was able to land a really big head kick on him, um, landed a few more shots on the ground, and that was it for that fight. Uh, Grant Dawson versus Ned Niramani. Dawson just... I don't know how this was 29-27 on one of the judges' scorecards. I'm not sure exactly what happened there, but uh, Dawson was just the much better fighter pretty much everywhere than Niramani was. Um, better on the feet, better on the ground, and was able to win a, un- a unanimous decision. Uh, Joe Duffy, what ended up being a retirement fight, pretty surprisingly, ended up losing to Joel Alvarez. Alvarez moves into 17-2 and now. Duffy, there was a time, and I feel like it wasn't that long ago, where he was like on the edge of the top 15 if he wasn't even if he wasn't in the top 15 himself I think he might have had a fight with um, Paul Felder if I'm remembering correctly where he ended up losing that and that sort of pushed him back uh, but either way he was one of those guys where you'd constantly hear about his name just because every time Conor McGregor did well uh, you hear about Joe Duffy because Joe Duffy had a win over him uh, had some good wins in the UFC where he's showing off some really good jiu-jitsu um, had some good wins where he's showing off really good boxing and it's just one of those guys where you figure that he'd eventually work his way into the top 15 and become a staple there and it never really happened uh, so for him, this was sort of a disappointing fight. Had a lot of trouble with the leg kicks of Alvarez. Even when Alvarez wasn't setting him up, he was just throwing him blindly. He was still giving Duffy a lot of trouble. Uh, Duffy eventually shoots in for a guillotine, or shoots in for a takedown. Uh, gets caught in a guillotine, and it was one of those guillotines where Alvarez was just like jamming his wrist into his throat, uh, really uncomfortable, and was able to get the tap. Uh, so after that, Joe Duffy decided to announce his retirement. Which, I mean, for him, if that's what he wants to do, that's. That's ultimately his choice. Definitely a disappointing end of it, end to his career because I think there was a lot of higher expectation for him, uh, not just because of the fact that he had a win over a guy in Conor McGregor who had such a great career, but because he, he looked pretty good in the UFC early on and just wasn't able to duplicate that towards the end of his run. Uh, fight before that was Brett Johns versus Montel Jackson. Uh, Johns was able to get the win by decision. A lot of takedowns in this fight, but wasn't a ton that was done on the ground. A few submission attempts here and there, but for the most part, Johns was able to find different ways once he would get Montel up against the fence to take him down, which I thought was pretty interesting because Montel is known for having gigantic hands and very good wrist control. Uh, so it's pretty interesting to see how Johns would get stuck in these positions where he just could not break the grip of Montel Jackson, but he'd find other ways to, to sort of wrestle through those positions and get takedowns. Uh, so I thought that was pretty pretty good by him. He had a pretty good run at the start in the UFC. I think he was like 14-0 or 15-0 at one point. Ran into Al- Aljamain Sterling, uh, got a loss there, uh, lost to Pedro Munoz as well. Uh, but it looks like right now he's sort of establishing himself as one of those guys who's on the fringe of the top 15 and is trying to continue to improve and work his way into that top 15 eventually and maybe work his way up from there. Uh, then we had Malcolm Gordon versus Amir Albazi. 
Apparently they said Malcolm Gordon's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, didn't necessarily look like it in this fight. Uh, Albazi was able to take him down, uh, didn't do a whole lot, they went back up to their feet, uh, got another takedown on him, uh, started from half guard, was able to slide into mount. Um, and then from there, I believe he briefly had the back of Malcolm Gordon as well, and then when Gordon was escaping it, um, reached his left arm back to push off of the mat, uh, which created an opening for the triangle. Abazi was able to shoot that triangle, was able to secure the triangle. I wasn't able to pull the arm, pull the arm across, and that's something we talked about on the broadcast. But with that being said, you don't need to pull the arm across necessarily on a triangle. Uh, it definitely helps. It definitely tightens it up, but you can still have a tight enough triangle without it. Uh, but look, there's a lot of pressure when he was pulling down on the head. Uh, that makes it really uncomfortable in the neck, and you can still get a choke from there. And apparently that was enough pressure for him to get the tap. Uh, fight before that was Armin Saryukin versus Davi Ramos. Uh, it really seems like Davi Ramos is in a position right now where the UFC is just throwing him against really good wrestlers to force the wrestlers to show what they can do on their feet. Uh, there was that kind of t- there was that type of fight that they had with Islam Makachev, where Makachev would just kind of take everyone down and beat them up on the ground. So like, okay, well, let's give you an ADCC champion and see what you do on the feet. And Makachev was able to outstrike him on the feet before eventually um, knocking him down in the third round and um, just being really patient from top and getting the win there. Uh, in this case with Saryukin, he's shown really great wrestling, so they figured, okay, same thing, let's see what you're going to do on the feet. Uh, Saryukin actually decided to take him down early in the first round, which I thought was a really interesting decision. Um, was fairly conservative in his ground and pound from the guard, but was was able to stay out of trouble while landing some decent shots. Uh, didn't really take him down a whole lot after that first round. Uh, but with that being said, was able to show much better striking than what we'd seen from Dabi Ramos, which to a point sort of sticks out that Dabi Ramos' striking really isn't that technically good, especially for as long as he's been in MMA. It doesn't seem like he's really been improving it a whole lot year to year. Uh, for the most part, he just throws looping punches with both his right, with both the lead and the rear hand, um, lead left and then rear right, um, but doesn't really set his shots up terribly well. And as a result, um, which is kind of winging punches here, Saryukin was throwing straighter, more technical punches and just picking them apart for the most part. So really good performance from Saryukin. Uh, was forced to show something on his feet because he was fighting against a really good grappler and Davi Ramos did that. Uh, also was able to take Ramos down a couple times and stay out of trouble. So for the most part, really good performance by him. Uh, Looked look fantastic for a 23-year-old and has really shown a lot of promise. Uh, for Davi Ramos, I guess, at this point, you, you probably keep him around and probably keep him in that same little position where you, you put him up against wrestlers who are boring otherwise and either make it so that they have to take down an ACC champion and control him for 15 minutes and try to not get submitted or uh, force them to actually strike and show what they have there. Uh, so we'll see where he goes from here. But for so you can... Um, I don't know that he's going to be getting a rank guy just yet, but it seems like he's not too far off from, from getting to that point. And then the first fight on the card was Carlos Felipe versus Sergey Spivak. Uh, not the most exciting fight. Uh, Spivak really didn't wrestle a whole ton compared to what we've seen, what we've seen from past fights, and, or what we've seen from him in past fights. Um, but was able to outland Felipe for the most part on the feet, was able to get a majority decision win. A um, little bit of a scuffle at the end there, which was kind of odd. I guess Felipe didn't take too kindly to the judge's decision, but he was also being acting really weird the entire fight. Uh, pretty much every time he get punched, he would sort of gesture back at uh, Spivak like it was nothing. It was just really kind of odd just the whole way through, and I guess finished in an odd way as well. Uh, so that covers it for the most recent fight night that happened on Saturday. Uh, so next I'll talk about the fight night that happened on Wednesday. That was headlined by Calvin Qatar and Dan Ige. And what was really interesting to me about this fight was that these guys, their weapons were both on the same side, effectively, in that... The big weapon that Dan Ige was looking for was that lead left hand, and the big weapon that Calvin Qatar was looking for was his rear right hand. And early on, they were landing, both of them were able to land that shot, and I think both of them realized that the power there and the danger that they were having to deal with. Uh, so Ige felt the power of Calvin Qatar's right hand, 
and then Katara felt the power of Ige's lead left hook. And so as a result, for Katara, every time you throw that re lead right hand, you're leaving an opening for the left hook if you don't time it right. And then for Ige, every time you throw that left hand, you're leaving an opening for the right hand. Uh, so both of them were sort of frozen up a little bit, uh, especially during the second round. There wasn't a ton of action there just because they were both trying to find secondary weapons to use because it seemed like plan A for Ige was going to be that lead left hand and plan A for Katara was going to need to find an opening for that rear right hand. And both of them were sort of like, okay, well, th this is the weapon I want to use, but I'm also creating an opening for their best weapon. Uh, so Katara's having to, having to work around and try to find some other opportunities. Same for Ige. Um, another thing I noticed for, for most of this fight is that Ige has pretty good grappling, uh, d decent wrestling, uh, pretty effective within MMA context, and then pretty solid on the ground. I believe he has a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu jiu black belt. It's not like he is like the, the flashiest guy on the map, but he's, he's definitely got really good fundamentals. We've, we've seen in the past where he's been able to pass, pass some guys' guards, get their back, and get, get a choke. Um, but every time he'd shoot on Katara, Katara was very effective in shutting down those takedown attempts. Uh, hitting wizards, uh, or hitting wizards, being able to catch an, an underhook right away. Um, really well-timed sprawls. So for the most part, this fight stayed placed on the feed, and there really wasn't a whole lot of grappling exchanges involved. Uh, but Katara was able to, to find a home for his jab more as the fight went on. Uh, was able to threaten with that. I uh, was able to time some lead, lead hooks as well. Uh, and then as the fight wore on and as the jab was becoming more effective, he was able to find a couple more openings for the right hand, but never really was able to drop Ige and put him in that much danger. Uh, so ultimately, Calvin Katara was able to get the win. At the end, Dan Ige's um, right eye was pretty swollen up from that jab that was landing over the course of time, um, just from Katara not being able to rely on the right hand as much as he had in past fights, but even still, a really good performance from him. Uh, really good toughness shown by Ige. So moving forward, Katara puts himself back into that title picture. Probably one or two wins away from a title shot, depending on how the rest of the division works out. And for Danny Ige, uh, showed that he can hang with one of the top guys, but I don't think a whole lot of people expected him to be like a top five guy this soon. Uh, so for him, he goes back to the drawing board, but showed that he can definitely hang with one of the better strikers in the division and, and land his shots as well. Coming event between Tim Elliott and Ryan Benoit. Um... I'm not sure I agree with the decision, but only ends up losing this by unanimous decision. All three judges gave it to Tim Elliott. Uh, Tim Elliott outlanded Benoit, but most of what he was landing were just pity pad strikes, a lot of leg kicks. He was just kind of like tapping the leg. He wasn't really like driving through it. Uh, whereas it seemed like every time Benoit was landing, he was like really landing to hurt Elliott and was getting a lot of power on his shots. Uh, so even in the rounds where Elliott had more volume, it's not as though the volume made up for the power, in my opinion. Um, on the ground, Elliott had his moments. Uh, especially early on, was able to, to, to take, an early, early, take an early round where he was able to threaten with a guillotine choke, get to mount, um, and then have some really good opportunities from there. Uh, but Benoit was able to get out. Benoit was looking for a couple of leg locks here and there, but wasn't ever really all that close uh, outside of a, a brief moment with a knee bar. But uh, Elliot was able to kick his foot free and then was able to adjust and slide his way out after that. Um, so ultimately, Tim Elliott gets the win. It's good for him in that I think he was on a four-fight losing streak. Uh, so it's good for him to actually get the win there. He's a guy who's fun to watch, so... As a fan, I, I want to see Tim Elliott just get a win at Flyweight just so he can stick around and so UFC doesn't feel pressure to get rid of him. Just because he always puts on fun fights. Even in that fight he had with Askarov, he had a really nice throw on Askarov, and I believe he won the first round against him. Uh, so we're talking about Askarov being a guy who's probably who could potentially get a title fight really soon. And Elliott's a guy who, who took a round off of him pretty recently. Uh, so fun fighter to watch. I'm glad for him that he gets the win, but I feel like Ryan Benoit kind of got robbed here, and I am hope that he gets to stick around and gets to fight again because I, I really do think that he won this fight. Uh, fight before that was Jimmy Rivera versus Cody Stamen. Not the most exciting fight, but Jimmy Rivera was able to get the win there. Uh, Stamen was not successful in taking Rivera down or, doing, or having any control of him on the ground uh, in the brief moments that this fight was on the ground. 
Um, and then on the feet, Rivera was just doing a better job of landing his kicks at range and um, doing a better job of landing his punches when they were within boxing range. The fight before that was Tyler Santos versus Molly McCann. Santos absolutely dominated his fight on the ground. Uh, McCann wasn't really able to do a whole lot from there. Santos had a few moments where it looked like she should have been able to get a finish, wasn't able to do so, but either way, um, pretty thorough, dominant performance from there. Uh, fight of the night was Monir Laziz versus Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Um, early on in the first round, it looked like Al-Hassan had Laziz hurt pretty bad, as he typically does. He'll walk his opponents down against the cage and start throwing wild bombs, usually landing a few, was able to land a few on Laziz. Uh, Laziz took him pretty well, though. I uh, was able to recover. I uh, was able to land a lot of knees, um, both at range, then also um, uh, up close and in the clinch against the fence. Um, was able to wear Abdul Razak Al Hassan down, and then as the later rounds came around, um, the, the pace of Abdul Razak Al Hassan just wasn't there compared to the first round, and Laziz was able to pick him apart a little bit more. Uh, he ends up winning a, a unanimous decision win here in a pretty exciting fight. Um, on the panels, we had Kamzat Chimaya versus John Phillips. Uh, just a dominant performance by Chimaev, and he's, it, it was dominant enough where this was his UFC debut, um, didn't take any damage at all, and he's like, hey, I want to get another fight, so the UFC's okay, fine, we'll find someone for you, and they actually got him a fight on the upcoming card that I'm about to preview, um, but he ends up winning this fight by Darce Choke against John Phillips, absolutely dominated the first round, was able to take him down, uh, control him, just beat him, up, beat him up the whole way through, and the second round take, took, took him down again, uh, and then as Phillips was trying to turtle uh, he was then able to feed a Darce choke through and then get the finish from there. So for Phillips, uh, not a good performance at all. Uh, ends up losing to a guy who's a weight class below him in a really dominant fashion. Although with Phillips, he's one of those guys who's just more of a brawler, uh, never really known as a grappler, so it's not as though this is the most surprising result. Uh, for Chimaev, uh, fantastic performance, got a lot of hype behind him, and he's going to have a chance to really build on that in seven days from now, or six days from now, I guess. Uh, fight before that, which was pretty surprising to me, was Lerone Murphy versus Ricardo Ramos. Ramos is the guy who's really impressed me this far in his career. Uh, he's looked really good, even in his losses, and I figured he'd give Murphy a much tougher time than he ended up giving him. Uh, Murphy was able to get a quick takedown in the first round, uh, and then once he was on top towards the end of the round, uh, landed some really heavy punches, uh, got Ramos to turtle up, and was able to land a few more to get the finish. Uh, we have Modestus Bukakis versus Andreas Michaelitis. Really weird finish here in that uh, Michaelitis was shooting for a takedown up against the fence. Bukakis uh, was hitting those Travis Brown elbows, and for the most part, they looked like they were pretty clean. There was one at the end there where um, Buka or where Michaelitis' head was sort of moving as the elbow was being thrown, so it looked like it hit him in the back of the head, but for the most part, they were mostly clean, and he was hurt by clean elbows. Uh, round ends, he's sort of just laying there on the ground, uh, not terribly responsive. Uh, they open up the fence to let everyone in, and then as he tries to lean back against the fence, he falls backwards, and then the ref calls the fight then. So it kind of looked bad in where it's like... A he probably assumed that the fence was going to be there, so he's just going to lean back up against the fence. Uh, fence wasn't there, and he fell through, and it made it seem like he was more hurt than he really was. But I think the fact that it took him so long in the first place to to get up and to stand up even... I mean, it's not that he ever really stood up before the fight stopped, but even to like, make it look like he was going to try to stand up. I think the ref would have been within his power to, to stop the fight then anyway. Uh, but the visual at the end there was pretty weird, and it was enough for Bukowski to get the win. Uh, we had Jared Gordon versus Chris Fishgold. Pretty surprising how it worked out in that Fishgold's a, a pretty good grappler, a black belt in jiu-jitsu. Um, was able to use that jiu-jitsu to become a Cage Warriors champion, but really hasn't looked that good in the UFC. And in this fight, didn't look terribly, or, or didn't look great either. Gordon was able to take him down multiple times, uh, defended against a couple of guillotine chokes, but for the most part was able to stay heavy on top, uh, get to some pretty good positions as well, get to top a turtle, uh, land some decent ground and pound, and was able to win this fight by unanimous decision. Um, 
it's a fight between Deanna Belbita and Liana Jojua. Uh, Belbita was looking decent on the feet, uh, ends up taking it to the ground, and then Jojua immediately um, traps both arms, shifts her hips over, goes for an armbar. Uh, has to make a couple adjustments here and there. Um, had it where it went from almost having an arm extended out to Belbita being able to sort of recover into sort of like a, a sort of spiderweb type of position, uh, where she at least was able to like cross her arms together. Uh, but from there, jo- Jojo was able to isolate an arm again, uh, eventually take a belly down and get the finish. And then the first fight on the card was Jack Shore versus Aaron Phillips. Absolutely dominant performance by Jack Shore, uh, who moves to 13-0. He's also a teammate of... I'm trying to think of the guy's name. He just fought... I just talked about him. Um, guy who fought Aljamain Sterling. Brett Johns. Yeah, he's a, a teammate of Brett Johns as well. Uh, both of them are very successful in, in using their grappling in, in, the, in the UFC and really good grappling clinic here from Jack Shore was able to take Phelps down multiple times and eventually was able to finish with a rear naked choke in the second round. Uh, so next card to talk about is going to be the upcoming card. This is going to be the one that's happening on Saturday, being invented by Darren Till and Robert Whitaker. This fight itself is very interesting to me in terms of how this could go. Darren Till at times can fight in a really boring manner and just kind of pick guys apart at range and just outstrike him because he has a very good striking background. Um, to an extent, that's kind of what we got in that fight with... Wonderboy Thompson, where Darren Till was able to outpoint him. Uh, when you had that fight with Kelvin Gastelum, that's sort of the approach he took as well, where he wanted to try to outpoint him. And if that's a Darren Till that we get against Robert Whitaker, I, I would say that Darren Till, when he wants to be, can be the more technical striker than Robert Whitaker is. And if that's how he wants to approach this fight, there's a decent chance he's going to be able to pick up a, a couple rounds on him, if not enough to get the win. Um, Whitaker is going to be the more dangerous striker here. He's a lot more aggressive than Darren Till generally is. Um, he's pretty good about closing the distance as well. So for, for Whitaker, it, it's been a little bit of a break for him. So after he lost his title, he, he did take a break from MMA. He took a break from training as well and sort of just kind of ha- had to find himself again. Um, a lot of the stories that he was putting out was just that he was just constantly training all the time and was just getting burnt out. Um, he says that he's now kind of regained his love for the sport. Hopefully that's the case. Um, but for him, he should have the advantage in grappling. Do I think he's going to try to take get Darren Till down? It would be a good idea for him to at least offer the threat of that just to make his striking more effective at the very least um, but if he does that he, he can definitely cause problems for Darren Till especially if he gets on top of him uh, can land some really good ground and pound granted when we've seen Darren Till on his back it was after he got dropped by Tyron Woodley so it's not as though that's the best sign of what Darren Till's going to look off of his back but if that's anything close to what we would see in this fight then Robert Whitaker would have a pretty big advantage if he's able to get him down uh, on the feet Whitaker is going to be dangerous um, it, it'll be interesting to see with Whitaker, where he he does mix stances every so often. Uh, typically, he likes to fight out of orthodox, uh, but having to fight a southpaw and Darren Till, is he going to try to go southpaw for southpaw with him sometimes? Is he going to try to just primarily do orthodox and look for a big right hand uh, and sort of hope for a similar result to what we saw in the Figueredo versus Benavides situation where the right the righty tries to land the big right hand on the southpaw and try to get him to circle into it? Uh, that's a possibility, but for me, this is sort of a tough one to call because it sort of depends on what we get from Darren Till. If Darren Till fights this in, a, in an aggressive manner, I would have to give Whitaker the edge. If Darren Till tries to just outpoint him the whole time, uh, I, I definitely think it's possible that he could do that. So to me, it's just definitely going to be a fun fight to sit back and watch and see how these guys approach it. Um, but based on the approach, this fight could definitely go either way. And I think a lot of it's going to depend on Darren Till in terms of how he wants to approach this. If Darren Till just tries to outpoint him and make it a boring fight just to get the win, uh, I, I think he's got a good chance at winning this. If Darren Till... Um, tries to be a little bit more exciting here and be more aggressive and try to get a finish on Whitaker, he's going to put himself in some tough, in some tough situations. I think Whitaker's going to be able to find his chin and be able to put him down. 
In the coming event, we have Mauricio, Shogun, Hua versus Hojera and Ogera. I think at least one of them are saying this is going to be the retirement fight. I don't know that I can believe either of them at this point because they've been around for so long, but uh, that seems to be what the plan is there. Uh, as far as the breakdown goes, it, it's sort of tough because at this point in their career, it's it, it's tough to say what they're comfortable doing. I think for the most part, Shogun has still shown that he's pretty comfortable on the feet, even if his chin isn't what it used to be. Uh, for Rogerio, his chin is definitely not what it used to be. Um, but he still tends to like to stand on the feet as well. So I think for the most part, it probably will be uh, a striking match. I think Shogun's going to have some success with his leg kicks. Um, for Rogerio, is he going to try to outbox him the whole way through? Is he going to feel comfortable throwing multiple combinations? Um, or does he feel like his chin isn't what it used to be and he doesn't feel comfortable leaving his, taking his hands away from his face for too long, which sometimes happens with older fighters? Uh, so I, I guess that remains to be seen. There's a chance that this, this could be a really boring fight and that they both fight fairly conservative. Neither of them wants to throw too many punches because they don't trust their chins. Um, or there's a chance that these guys just go out and say, screw it, this might be my last big fight of my career. I want to I wanna make it fun. The fight before that is a really interesting one in that it's going to be Alexander Gustafson returning to the UFC. Um, moving up to heavyweight now to fight Fabrizio Verdum. Verdum looked really bad in his last fight against Alexei Olenek. Um, just looked really slow, out of shape. Um, could that be because he wasn't on the sauce anymore? That's definitely a possibility. But either way, it just was not a great performance from him. Uh, for Gustafson, I mean, he looked okay. Um, obviously, the finish wasn't great against Anthony Smith. Um, you would like to see him a little bit better from him on the ground. It would make you think that if Verdum's able to get him down, that he'll also be able to offer him uh, a pretty big threat there. But I think for the most part, this fight will be on the feet. And Gustafson, being the better boxer than Fabrizio Verdum, is going to have a lot of success there and be able to get the win that way. Uh, fight before that is a really interesting one for the strawweight division between Carlos Barz and Marina Rodriguez. Marina Rodriguez had a has looked really good so far in the UFC. Uh, had a pretty tight fight. Or not not a tight fight. She, she won the fight actually pretty easily. Uh, but had a fight against Tisha Torres where Torres was trying to take her down the whole time. Uh, Rodriguez was able to stuff it and was able to outstrike her for the most part. Marina has very good striking. Uh, some of the best striking in the division. Should be a better striker than Carlos Esparza. Esparza, in theory, should be a better wrestler, though, than Tisha Torres is. So it'll be interesting to see if Esparza is able to get Marina Rodriguez down, how Marina is able to fight her way off the back, fight, fight off her back, whether she's able to thread with submissions or just work her way back up to the feet. Um, and if Rodriguez isn't taken down, then it'll be interesting to see if she's able to just pick Carlos Barza apart and possibly even get a finish over her. And if she does, that'd be a really big win for her. Uh, fight before that will be Paul Craig versus Gazi Morad Antigolov. Don't know a whole lot about Antigolov. Paul Craig is interesting in that I just don't see him as being one of the better guys in the division. I'm sort of surprised he's still in the UFC. Uh, has a pretty good triangle choke off of his back, but his striking hasn't been great, and he's definitely been caught multiple times as a result. Um... Did have that really big win against Ankalai, where Ankalai was beating the shit out of him, and then, like, in the last second of the last round, was able to catch a triangle and get a finish there. Um, so as Ankalai continues to move up in the division, that'll be a, a win that looks good on Paul Craig's record, but for the most part, he was losing that fight, was able to catch him there at the end. Um, but Antigolov, I'm not exactly sure what to expect from him, uh, with him being Russian, if he wants to wrestle Craig the whole time. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he can stay out of trouble and not get caught in that triangle. If he does, then that could be another big win for Craig, for him to stick around. Um, but if not, then... I can see this being one-way traffic for Antigolov. Uh, and we also have Alex Oliveira versus Peter Sabata, which is a bit of an interesting fight. I feel like it's been a while since we've last seen Sabata. Um, really good German fighter with pretty good jiu-jitsu. Oliveira, um, I, I think pretty much everyone knows what to expect from him. Just very aggressive on the feet, really good Muay Thai. Um, decent jiu-jitsu on the ground, but has definitely gotten himself in trouble on the ground as well. Um, so... I think for the most part, Sabata's going to be trying to take this fight to the mat. Alex Oliveira is going to try to keep it on the feet. I think for the most part, Oliveira is going to be successful in that. He's probably going to be able to, to win this fight either by decision or by TKO. Uh, and then on the prelims, we have Francisco Masvardu Trinaldo versus Jaya Herbert. 
I uh, don't know anything about Herbert, so it's hard for me to break the fight down. Nicholas Dalby versus Jesse Ronson. Uh, so Dalby, uh, again, back in the UFC, he'll be fighting against Ronson, the Canadian, who's got a 20-10 and 10 record. Uh, we've got Jake Collier versus Tom Aspinall. Uh, Mosar Evlovia versus Mike Grundy, Mike Grundy, which would be pretty fun. Uh, Evlovia, or however it's pronounced, E-V-L-O-E-V. Uh, he's 12-0, Grundy, 12-1 uh, wrestling coach um, of Darren Till. Um, obviously an excellent grappler. We've got Tanner Burz- Tanner Bozer returning against Rafael Pessoa. Um, the return of Betch Cohea versus Panny Kianizad. Uh, Ramzan Amiyev versus Nicholas Stolze. Uh, the return of Kamzat Chimaev, who I was talking about earlier. He'll be fighting against Reese McKee. And then Nathaniel Wood will be fighting John Castaneda. Uh, Nathaniel Woods looked really good at Bantamweight. I was supposed to fight against Umar Nurmagomedov. Umar had to pull out because of the whole situation with Khabib's dad. Um, so he'll be he'll still be on the card against John Castaneda. Uh, but Wood's one of those guys I've looked at as someone who could potentially break his way into the top 15 and really work his way up in the bantamweight division. Had a tough loss recently. Um, had a decent opportunity with Umar. Uh, won't be getting that specific fight, but he can still pick up a win here against Castaneda and work his way back up. But I, I, I see a pretty bright future for him. So that covers it for the UFC. Uh, next thing to talk about is going to be the return of Bellator. And the main event of this card that is going to be happening in Connecticut is going to be Ricky Bandejas versus Sergio Pettis, which is a really fun fight. Um, it's sort of surprising that their first their first fight back is going to be headlined by this specific fight. Uh, I would have assumed they would have done something a little bit bigger, but I guess if you're not going to be making a whole lot of money on on attendance, uh, probably not going to use your most expensive guys in the first main event. Uh, but either way, Bandejas, a lot of people remember him from his win over James Gallagher. Uh, but it's looked pretty solid in that division ever since then. Sergio Pettis had a good run in the UFC. Um, had some good wins at flyweight before eventually leaving. Uh, but he'll he'll get a really big opportunity here against Ricky Bandejas. If he gets the win, then he immediately becomes a contender in Bellator. Um, coming events going to be Jordan Meehan versus Jason Jackson. Uh, Meehan looked pretty good in the strike force. Uh, had an okay run in the UFC. Wasn't great. Uh, retired for a bit. Uh, but it's now back in MMA and he's fighting for Bellator. So he'll be in the co-main. Uh, we got the return of Aaron Pico versus Chris Hatley. Uh, Tyron Claxton will be back. He'll be fighting J.J. Wilson. And then um, Steve Mowry will also be out on the card fighting Rudy Shafroth. Uh, so some decent fights, uh, at least from some interesting contenders for Bellator. It seems like it's been quite a while since they've returned, or since they've had an event uh, over four months. It's not as if they're coming back guns a-blazing, but they are coming back with some, some pretty, good, pretty good prospects, and it's nice to see them back. Because uh, last week I was talking about how it seems like you just haven't heard a peep from them lately, and you wondered... Uh, what their plans were for the future. So at least they are continuing on and they are going to be putting on this card right here. And there are going to be some entertaining fights and some some interesting up-and-comers that are going to be on it. Next thing to talk about is going to be Ali Abdelaziz and his decision to ban his fighters from doing any interviews with ESPN. Um, effectively, this seems like it was just a move where he's trying to take a power move right here. He's got a lot of the best guys in the world. If he can keep them off of ESPN, then he figures that maybe ESPN will say, hey, if all we have to do is get these guys back, to get these guys back is to remove Ariel Helwani, uh, then maybe we got to get rid of Ariel. It seems like that's what the plan was there. Um, pretty bogus move by Ali by to try to pull that. It uh, doesn't seem like it worked. I'm pretty sure Ariel's still with ESPN. I feel like I would have heard had he been let go. Uh, for ESPN, definitely the right move not to not to give Ali the power to, to let them make a decision like that. So it's good that they haven't got rid of Ariel, at least not yet, and at least not... Uh, where it appears as though it's Ali who's, who made that decision for them. Uh, but with that being said, if you're a client of Ali Abdelaziz, it's not helpful to do at all to be kept off of ESPN. ESPN has a very big platform. Uh, they get a ton of views for their interviews, a ton of views for their shows. 
And so if you have an up-and-coming fighter, or even a bigger fighter, and you deny them the opportunity to, to get that sort of press and give, get that opportunity to build their name, you're really not helping them out. And in that way, you're also kind of hurting yourself as well because as a management group, you're, you're getting paid a percentage of what they're able to bring in. So if they make less money, you're making less money as well. So it just seems like it was a move that Ali has to know is not in the best interest of his fighters. It's more of something he's just trying to do to, to get rid of Ariel and to, to take him out at ESPN doesn't seem like it worked so i think at this point it'd be best for him to to get rid of that rule and to go back to having his fighters doing interviews on espn and really he should be having them do interviews on aerial shows too because aerial shows do get some decent numbers so it, it doesn't help them to to keep them off of it uh next topic to talk about is going to be brazilian jiu-jitsu uh specifically the bjj stars event that's been coming up on saturday main event on this fight or main event on this card is gonna be joel gabriel hocha versus Kainan duarte uh Kainan, uh adcc champion uh, was a black belt world champion in 2019 prior to a possible prior to a positive steroid test where that was taken away from him, uh, but obviously still a world class guy uh, versus Joao Gabriel Hocha, who is one of those guys who's always been there among the best guys in the world but hasn't quite yet done it where he's won the big tournament. Uh, so he's gotten some silvers at some huge tournaments, has beaten some of the guys who are world champions but just hasn't beaten them at the right time. Uh, so him versus Kynan will be interesting. He's definitely be the bigger guy than Kynan. Um, I feel like I haven't seen a whole lot of Joao Gabriel recently. I think he did have a match on Kasai fairly recently, but outside of that, hasn't been terribly active, whereas Kynan uh, is usually very active. I haven't seen him as much lately, but uh, around ADCC he was active. Right after ADCC he was still pretty active, so this will be a fun match to watch. Uh, then we got Leandro Lowe versus Lucas Barboza, which is going to be really interesting. Um, Leandro Lowe is a fantastic guard passer, multiple-time world champion, um, one of the greats at Jiu-Jitsu. Barboza excellent from top really good top pressure he did have that match recently with Rafael Lovato Jr. Uh, where he got on top was able to pass his guard and eventually armbar Lovato uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this match breaks out in terms of who's going to get top position and how it'll work from there Leandro Lowe has a fantastic X guard uh, so if Barbosa gets on top is Barbosa going to be able to stay heavy enough where he doesn't let Leandro Lowe get into that X guard uh, or is Lowe going to be able to get it and still find a way to sleep Bar- sweep Barbosa and then get on top and score some points from there I- either way it'll be a very fun match uh, we got Patrick Guardio versus Herbert Santos. Uh, a couple of super aggressive guys here. Uh, Herbert, hopefully we don't get the, the type of Herbert who, who quits and gives up at random times. Hopefully this is um, a really good version of Herbert that we get. Uh, hopefully he doesn't start a fight in the stands either, and he, he just keeps everything on the mat, unlike the match that he had with Felipe Pena. Uh, but either way, this should be a fun one. Uh, Claudio Calazans versus Isaac Bahians. Uh, feels like it's been a while since I've seen Izaki. I think the last time I really remember watching him he had a good run at Worlds. I feel like he's had a couple super fights since then, but it'd be nice to see him back. Kalasans, I think, is a little bit bigger than him, but still, this should be a fun one. Uh, Bianca Basilio versus Anna Rodriguez. Uh, Leo Lech versus Gabriel Gonzaga. Uh, so that'll be fun to see Gabriel Gonzaga competing in Jiu-Jitsu again. Uh, he had a pretty good run at Master Worlds last year, but to see him competing against Leo Lech will be pretty fun. Uh, Hanada Mourinho versus Sabata Lais. Not sure who either of those are. Uh, Sergio Marais, former UFC fighter, been around for a little while. Uh, former black belt world champion. He'll be returning to Jiu-Jitsu, fighting against Luis Marquez. Uh, we got Gabriel Royal versus Charles Do Bronx Oliveira, which is really fun. It feels like it's been a while since Charles Oliveira has competed. It, it was actually back on March 14th, right after everything shut down for Corona. Uh, the UFC still had one more event in Brazil. They were able to get the main event with Charles Oliveira versus Kevin Lee. Oliveira was able to submit Kevin Lee. Uh, from, from that point, we still don't have a match for Charles Oliveira in the UFC. Uh, I think a lot of people want to see him fight against a top five guy and get a really good opportunity there. Uh, but nothing signed yet. Uh, but he's going to be staying busy. He'll be on this card fighting up against Gabriel Royal in Jiu-Jitsu. 
and by Royal I mean R O L L O. Uh, not terribly familiar with who he is, but I'm sure he's a very good black belt, and obviously Charles is a very good black belt himself. Uh, the other matches that are listed here are Clever, Clandestino versus Mayram Makin. Um, I don't know if that's Mayram Alves or if and they're using like a middle name for him, or if that's just a completely different guy. Um, they got Charles Duende versus Gustavo Jimu, and Marcos uh, Pecho versus Robinho, but still a lot of really really good main card matches here um, from the top with the, go- with the Hosha versus Duarte match all the way down to um, the Charles Dobronx match. You have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine really high-level high matches here. And the other matches, I'm sure, are pretty high-level as well. I'm just not as familiar with the guys right now. Last topic to talk about is going to be the big wrestling card that's going to be coming up. Uh, it will be headlined by Kyle Dake and Frank Chimizo. Uh, that'll be going on in Austin, streamed on Flow Wrestling. Uh, so that's going to be your main event. Dake, world champion. Chimizo, world champion. Um, both at different weights, although I think both of them are going to be looking to go to 74 kilograms for the Olympics this coming year. Uh, so this could be a preview of what could potentially be a really big match in the Olympics, assuming that Kyle Dake is able to make the team over Jordan Burroughs. I would imagine that Chimizo should be able to make the Italian national team. I don't know who would give him trouble to do that. Uh, but that's going to be a really fun match in the main event. Coming event was supposed to be a really, really fun match between David Taylor and Pat Downey. Uh, the two of them have some beef. Uh, after David Taylor had torn his ACL at Beat the Streets, the event that Jordan Burroughs and Ben Askren had their match at, um, he was not able to go to, for the world team in 2019, so Pat Downey ended up taking a spot. Um, Downey did a decent job at the world championships, but it's not as though he won it all like David Taylor was able to do the year before. Uh, and so I think a lot of people expect... David Taylor, now that he's healthy again, to, to run through Pat Downey and to, to take that spot back. And this is going to be a fun match for it because Pat Downey is a really outspoken guy and D- David Taylor is one willing to uh, to let his opinion be heard as well. But unfortunately, Pat Downey had made a comment that really was not all that controversial if you look at the merit of it. He was pretty much just saying, like, look, personally, I enjoy watching women's wrestling, but most people don't. Um, the numbers aren't there for it like it is for men's wrestling. And so for them to be arguing that they deserve to be paid the same as the men on this full wrestling card when they don't draw the same as the men is kind of ridiculous. Uh, he was also making similar comments about Greco-Roman wrestling, where Greco-Roman is not as popular as freestyle, which again is true. But a lot of people got sensitive. They got pissed off. Uh, Pat Downey doubled down and ended up pissing, up pissing off a lot of people and as a result ends up getting pulled from the card, uh, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I, I think if you've ever watched pro wrestling in the past, you kind of have like this heel versus face type of thing where the baby face is the good guy that everyone wants to cheer for, the heel is the bad guy that everyone wants, everyone wants to cheer against. And Pat Downey put himself in a position where among a lot of people he was the heel. And I, I think Flow Wrestling sort of took like this lazy corporate belief of, oh, well, people don't like Pat Downey, so now we don't want to put him on the card rather than being like, hey, we're actually going to play into this and say, hey, Pat Downey's the underdog against David Taylor. Like, tune in and watch if you want to see him to get, get beat up by David Taylor. And if you like Pat Downey, then tune in and watch and see if you can find a way to beat David Taylor and really um, stick it to everyone. And I think that would have been a much better approach for them. Um, but instead, they decided to take Pat Downey off the card and replace him with Miles Martin, who lost a couple times to Pat Downey in attempting to get, to get that world team spot in 2019. Uh, still going to be a fun match, but I don't think anyone's really dying to see Miles Martin versus David Taylor uh, compared to the Pat Downey matchup. A few other matchups that'll be on here they have Darian Caldwell. Uh, former bandweight champion from Bellator. He'll be returning to wrestling here to fight against Luke Pletcher, who was the number one guy at 141 pounds this year for Ohio State. Uh, and then we also have Jack Mueller, who was an NCAA finalist last year at 125 pounds before losing to Spencer Lee of Iowa. Uh, he will be facing off against Roman Bravo Young of Penn State, who is one of the top guys this year for Penn, for um, the 133-pound weight class. Uh, lost to Sebastian Rivera in the Big Ten Finals, but looked really good. They look at a win over Austin DeSanto. 
and looked like he was going to have a pretty good year uh, and possibly have a really good tournament before everything got shut down due to COVID. So that'll be a fun match as well. Uh, one more match they also have is Vito Ruggio, who had a really good run at 125 pounds last year. Uh, he'll, he'll be going up against Sammy Alvarez, who looked really good for Rutgers this year at 133 pounds. Had a couple close matches with Roman Bravo Young as well. Uh, although I don't think he ever really put himself in like the top eight of the weight class, but it still proved that he can hang with some of the best guys. So that'll be what to watch for on that card. So obviously next week I've got a, a decent amount of recapping to do, so I'll have to recap the Whitaker versus Tillman. UFC card, uh, I'll have to recap the Bellator card, I'll have to recap EJJ Stars, and I'll have to recap this wrestling card as well. Uh, and then I'm sure over the course of that time some new stories are going to pop up. Uh, the UFC's got some more events that they're going to be planning sometime soon. There's some talk about Nevada potentially giving them trouble for running events in the future. If that happens, then obviously the is going to have to make some changes and make them on the fly. So if there's any news on that, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be talking about that. And really anything else that comes up. Hopefully Bellator, when they have their event, they're going to announce another event coming up after that. Maybe it'll have a bigger fight than what we're getting in that main event with Bandeos versus Pettis. Maybe they're going to have some title fights coming up soon. Uh, so I'm sure there'll be some news to bring up, but at the very least, we've got plenty of recapping to do for next week, and hopefully there's going to be some more to talk about as well.